The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Clerical Conversations on the Crisis on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Justin Soder, and I have the good fortune of sharing the next uh, oh, hour and a half to two hours with His Excellency, Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida, as well as Father Anthony Chicotta, the Assistant Pastor of St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio. Your Excellency and Father, welcome to the program. Hello. Hello. Thank you. And also, I'm joined by my co-host, Nicholas Wansbutter. Nicholas, thank, thank you for being back with us. Oh, my pleasure, as always. Well, we are back again this evening uh, to discuss yet another installment of Bergoglio's Manifest Public Apostasy. Uh, we, <laughs> we began covering these breaking stories back on the 13th of September, uh, when it was revealed by Bergoglio that uh, atheists can go to heaven if they obey their consciences. Uh, then we were on air last Monday, the 23rd, with Stephen Heiner uh, on the Clerical Conversations number 6 to discuss uh, Bergoglio's interview with uh, La Civilta Catolica, uh, which really read more like a manifesto of Bergoglio's thoughts and the directions that he wished to you know, take, the, take the Novus Ordo Church. And so now tonight we're back again to discuss another breaking news piece which has really sent shockwaves throughout the Catholic world uh, and certainly set the blogosphere on fire with his latest personal interview which Bergoglio gave to Eugenio Scalfari of uh, La Repubblica, which I think has to probably be, I think we would all agree, the worst we've seen yet and also the most telling about who Jorge Bergoglio really is. And uh, your Excellency and Father, the media, the, the special interest groups, the secular leaders, I mean, they're falling all over themselves in, in, uh, in admiration and adulation uh, onto Borgoglio. I mean, he is just racking up the endorsements across the globe for his, uh, his new vision of the Catholic Church. I mean, we've had public endorsements from Hans Kung, Leonard Boff, NARAL, which is, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar, is the National Abortions Rights Action League who just recently took out a full-page ad to thank Francis for saying that the, uh, the Catholic Church shouldn't speak so much about abortion and homosexuality and contraceptions. But now, now we have possibly the greatest endorsement to date, and one that may be tough to top. Who could that be? Pope Francis uh, said the other day that the Catholic Church, without changing the Church's positions, he said it had become too obsessed on issues like gay rights and abortion. What do you think of the Pope's remarks, and do you see any broader applicability beyond the Catholic Church? I tell you, I, I have been hugely impressed with, uh, with the Pope's pronouncements. Uh, not because uh, of, of any particular issue, but uh, you know, first of all, he seems somebody who 
um, lives out uh, the teachings of Christ. Uh, incredible humility, uh, an incredible sense of, of, of empathy to the least of these, to the poor. Um, and he's also somebody who's, uh, I think, first and foremost thinking about how to embrace people as opposed to push them away, uh, how to find what's good in them as opposed to condemn them. And that spirit, uh, uh, that uh, sense of love and unity, uh, seems to manifest itself uh, in uh, not just what he says, but also what he does. And you know, for any re- religious leader, uh, that's something that uh, that's a quality I admire, and uh, I would argue for any leader, period, that's a quality uh, that I admire. Well, 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 what endorsements? <laughs> what endorsements can top that? I mean, what, what can Bergoglio expect next? I mean, is, is, uh, is Fidel Castro going to be propped up in the hospital bed to, you know, to heap his praises, maybe Kim Jong-un of North Korea, Your Excellency, Father? <laughs> what do you have to say about that? Uh, well, he is the what, darling of of atheists and freethinkers and perverts and and liberals and communists and socialists and and people who adhere to liberation theology, uh, people that have always been considered the enemies of the church, and he he is just their their hero, and uh, I think that says a lot about him. He if he were saying things that Pius X said or Pius XI or Pius XII. Uh, we're saying he would be considered the scum of the earth by these people. So their approval is is an, another indication of the fact that he has abandoned the Catholic faith. It also shows uh, the uh, <clears throat> general perception that people who are the, the really crazy uh, secular liberals have. And certainly, I think Obama is really the king of that. When you get an endorsement from someone like him that's that's so glowing, uh, it really shows the uh, depth of his support uh, among uh, free thinkers and and, uh, atheists and people who uh, simply otherwise have no use for religion uh, because of its uh, constraints on them. Well, to let our listeners know this evening, we are going to be covering the the latest interview here, and, and there's a lot of material to cover. We will be taking phone calls, and we'll probably start at the top of the second hour uh, taking some phone calls. If you want to call in and get in the queue, you can. The, uh, the phone number to call in is 949-272-9417. Again, that's 949-272-9417. You're welcome to call in, but we do ask that tonight... We have to keep the comments short and uh, directly related to the interview, uh, the questions that uh, we have. We have a couple email questions we're going to get to as well tonight, uh, but we have to be respectful of the clergy's time to to speak about these particular topics here. And uh, I would also alert our listeners that uh, Father Chicada is now on Twitter since uh, since he has to uh, you know he has to be covering all these breaking stories. I mean. <laughs> We were joking beforehand about you could almost do a cable news station on nothing but you know Bergoglio's day-to-day affairs. 
So the next best thing is Father Chicada's Twitter account. You can follow him uh, at twitter.com at Father Chicada. And I would also mention SGG Resources. Uh, this is really kind of the uh, you know the portal for breaking news and, and uh, up to date information from Father. And uh, Father, you, you just released a video, did you not on on this? Uh, kind of a, a summation of the the first seven months. Yes, that's right. Um, there is a um, SGG Resources now has a YouTube channel by that name, and we just put up a, a film that kind of gives a resume of what uh, Bergoglio has, has been up to. And um, I wanted the um, resume uh, in, um, in words to uh, go along with this, this one particular song, which you'll hear. Well, it, it turned out that he said actually so many things I, I really had difficulty choosing to uh, get them all in, in such a actually in such a short video, but you can find that on uh, YouTube. That's SGG Resources. Okay, excellent. Um, I think the best way to start off here is to uh, speak a little bit about uh, right before we get to the meat of the interview, which we're going to jump right into. But uh, uh, Your Excellency Father, I, I don't know who wants to take this question first, but. What are you seeing so far in the wake of this uh, this latest you know release in terms of the you know the spinmeisters and the excuse makers and what what defenses are you seeing of this now or are you seeing any defenses of this? Well, you are seeing defenses. One is, of course, that well, it's bad translation, and uh, the lie is uh, this bad translation from the Italian this this last uh, interview. But the lie, <coughs> excuse me, is put to that. I think by uh, an article uh, written by Sandro Magister in um, the uh, Italian newspaper Espresso, where he, in an article called The Francis Transformation, he goes through Bergoglio's statements and uh, he draws from them the same conclusions that we draw from them. So I think that the uh, idea that somehow it's a mistranslation. Magister is an Italian, and he's reading Italian, and he is explaining correctly the perception one ought to have of Bergoglio's statements. Uh, another argument that you hear is that these were taken uh, out of context. But well, any quote is taken out of context. The uh, the question is, did it uh, actually mean what, uh, uh, did you give a fair meaning of it? And again, Magister's article shows that um, uh, what we've, the, the, the perception of people of what Bergoglio is actually saying is in fact uh, uh, correct, that it's not out of context. Mm -hmm. Your Excellency? Well, yeah, it's, the, the, Novus Ordo conservatives uh, are going to do anything in order to protect him because they see him as an essential part of their system. If they admit our uh, accusations, if they admit that they are true, their whole system falls apart. So he could come out naked on the... On, and he, who knows, he might do it someday. He could come out naked on the on St. Peter's Basilica on the balcony and say there is no God and there is you know Christ is not God and there is no God at all and I'm an atheist and they will defend him they will say something well you know it was an evil entourage or 
who is a, uh, a substitute or is they they know the reason they do that and the reason why they go to such lengths is they know that if they admit that he is guilty and uh, of abandoning the Catholic faith, that the only thing left to them is state of vacantism. And they regard state of vacantism as something so evil and so horrible uh, that uh, they just can't bear it. So they, they live in a, a type of fantasy world defending anything that he says. But I think that they are, it's getting harder and harder for them because he is sort of stretching the, the, the pencil strength of the what is connecting them is that he's pulling and pulling harder on that wire that they are trying to hold <laughs> and that either the wire is going to break or they he is going to drag them to the left and you can see that happening a lot of them speak like modernists they are being dragged as he moves left they are being dragged left and they are gradually losing the faith well, and uh, more, that um, puts me in mind of uh, the other common objection that I've seen a fair bit of lately is going back to the, well, uh, you're an ultramontanist, you're a papolitor if you say that, you know, he's not Pope for saying stuff like this because this isn't ex cathedra, it, you know, it's nothing official, so, you know, we've had bad popes before, we've had Alexander the Sixth before, and therefore we can, we don't need to worry about this, and you're just it now. There are so many fallacies in that argument that you just made that it would take me about a half an hour to explain <laughs> each one. The, 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 that is the typical package that you get from Society of St. Pius X. You know, we've had bad popes before. That is the apples and oranges argument. Uh, uh, if a pope is debauched, that is one thing, and that is a very unfortunate thing. But it has nothing to do with his profession of the faith. As a matter of fact, Alexander VI, who was probably the most debauched, although there were others, uh, he defended the faith very much. I mean, he was exemplary in his defense of the Catholic faith. The, the church is, is not a society of saints. It's a society of faith. So what gives you the ticket to the Catholic Church is your profession of the faith. And if someone publicly ceases to profess the faith, he steps out of the church because he breaks the fundamental bond with Christ that happens at baptism, which is the bond of faith, and which which attaches him to Christ as head of the church. If the faith is broken, then the bond with Christ as head of the church is broken, and every other bond is broken. So the, the central issue is two things. One, is this man a public heretic or not? I would say he's a public apostate since his last statement. And secondly, and actually more importantly, are the changes of Vatican II a continuation of Catholicism or are they rupture with Catholicism? If they are rupture with, with the Catholicism, then it is impossible that that man be the Pope because the authority of the Catholic Church cannot promulgate to the whole Church a rupture with Catholicism. Those uh, and are the it, central issues. Everything else is nonsense. That, those are the central issues. But it, it strikes me that it's also uh, engenders a certain sort of Gallicanism or a real downplaying of of the role of uh, the Pope when they when that sort of 
argument or attitude is taken. Yes, and even even more than that, it makes a joke of the idea of the magisterium. Uh, this um, every utterance you get from someone who is supposedly uh, at the head of teaching authority of the Catholic Church becomes unreliable. His um, all of his his uh, uh, public teachings uh, are subject to uh, error and to free examination and then all sorts of private interpretation. Is what you end up with is, is, as a consequence is that a uh, you have a magisterium that uh, spews out uh, all of these uh, ideas, a lot of which are harmful, a lot of which are poisonous, and you have to defend yourself against them. So you get a magisterium that doesn't really teach you how to get to heaven? I can. Yeah, yeah I can speak. Society of Saint Pius. Excuse me. The Society of Saint Pius X has practically memorized all of the Gallican arguments that were put forth in the 19th century, particularly against papal infallibility, and which were put forth even before that in order to defend the liberties of the Gallican Church. Where you have a pope in Rome, and that's very nice, but we do what we want and think what we want in France. And the Society of St. Pius X has accepted all of their arguments. But it's as if they memorized them, because in the 19th century they were putting forth all of these uh, cases where they considered the Pope to have erred, the Gallicans. And all, and just, they wrote books and books about it. And SSBX has adopted all of those and proffers all of those as arguments in favor of their system. Um, well, you know, Your Excellency, uh, <clears throat> Father, I think the I was having a, a, a cup of coffee the other morning with a with a gentleman, you know, who's certainly of the uh, the indult slash motu uh, bent, and he made the comment to me. He says, "Well, he says I'm just getting very tired of uh, you know Pope Francis coming out and saying, uh, you know, making all these statements, and he you know he's making them in ways that are misunderstood, and you know, and they're." Yeah, they're hard to understand, and I think I almost spit my coffee out because I said, "Look, I said you know, if you're misunderstanding, if there's plenty of people out there that are not misunderstanding what he's saying, okay? And if you're mm-hmm. misunderstanding what he's saying, it's because you're trying to make him say something that he's not. I mean, I don't know how this man can speak more clearly. He is clearly conveying what he believes, and mm-hmm. you know, if you can't understand this." If, if, if somehow you can't derive from you know there is no Catholic God, well then uh, you know I, there's nothing really more to say. I mean we are you know we're living on different planets. Yes, and he does not repudiate any bad interpretations that are made by the press or anyone else. Uh, when our blessed Lord spoke about the Holy Eucharist, his even his disciples walked away from him, saying, "How can he give us?" his blood to drink and his flesh to eat. And our Lord insisted upon the interpretation, the literal interpretation. Uh, He did not say, oh, I'm sorry, Uh, you misunderstood. And so Bergoglio has not in any way retracted anything he said. or or He he lets these things stand, and he's quite proud of them. I mean, they can't. And also, the rules of interpretation are such that uh, you you must look at the context uh, uh, and other statements of the person you're interpreting. Uh, if he you know, if if he were St. Pius X and he made a slip 
uh, in some sort of conversation he had that could be badly interpreted or some sort of slip in a sermon, which is easy, which can happen easily, uh, you would say, well, his, his background and his record is so good that this has to be taken in a benign way. But when somebody has a background like his, which is absolutely abominable, we, uh, the only reasonable interpretation is that the, what he is saying is wrong and bad. So these people are living in a kind of dream world, but they are motivated in order to do that because they, they know that Vedicantism is the other side of their coin. It, it, they're saying in order that the, if he's the Pope, he must be Catholic, and that's true. The other side of that coin is if he's not Catholic, he can't be the Pope, and they know that. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, for those just joining us, we're about 20 minutes into our program here on on uh, Clerical Conversations on the Crisis, and we are discussing with His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn and Father Chicada the uh, the latest interview, which was released by Eugenio Scalfari of La Repubblica. We're going to get right into the interview right now, and I think if if uh, if our listeners have uh, have uh, either downloaded or listened live the last two shows that we did on the Atheism Show and the one last Monday. Uh, on the new on the new new springtime of Francis, the one that um, uh, Stephen did for clerical conversations with His Excellency and Father, one of the things the central point that His Excellency and Father have driven home is they understand this language very well. This is '60s liberalism, and they learned it the hard way. They were in the seminary and they heard all this. They lived it firsthand when this was this was all new, fresh meat that was being thrown out there and being called Catholicism. And uh, so, Father. Uh, I think probably where we can go here is to begin talking about the very first uh, the very first part of this interview. I would remind callers one more time, we are taking phone calls, but we won't be getting to them until the top of the hour. The phone number, if you want to call in, is 949-272-9417. So, and I'll just jump in there. Before we start doing quotes from the interview, I'll just remind listeners that we've linked to the interview that we're talking about in this show in the show description. If you go to Blog Talk Radio forward slash Restoration Radio and go into the show, we're linking to the interview. If you want to follow along with these quotes and look at the context uh, to satisfy yourself that we're not uh, taking things out of context. Yeah, you may want to also have a brown paper bag nearby just in case something you know against your <laughs> against your uh, your health issues come up here and and you know you can't you can't contain certain things that you may have eaten earlier in the day today. Anyway, so here we go. Uh, the very beginning of this interview, uh, Bergoglio addresses what he seems to believe are the most serious evils. Now, keyword there: evils facing our time today, facing the church, facing the Catholics. His most urgent problem is this. This is what he says, quote, The most serious of the evils that afflict the world these days are the youth unemployment and the loneliness of the old. This, to me, is the most urgent problem that the church is facing, quote, unquote. So, Your Excellency, take it away. <laughs> well, there's so many things to say about that. First of all, Sins against the divine majesty are far worse than any sins against humanity. So while we might be horrified by murder and horrified even by an abortion, the sins of blasphemy and of heresy and of apostasy and of atheism, the sins of nations 
uh, approving uh, evil things as laws, as, as you know, approving with law the, the perversions of human beings. These are the things that truly make the earth stink in the in the divine sight. It, it is a filthy, rotten place because it is offending God directly. That must be said first. And so the greatest problems of the church are the supernatural ones of loss of faith. And it goes right back to Vatican II. The, the, the reason why there is such a loss of faith is because of Vatican II. The reason why the church is in the state that it's in is because of Vatican II. And he is so blind and so prideful as to think of Vatican II as something great that happened in the church with marvelous effects. And, and so that, that is, should be said first. It shows that he has no supernatural vision. I would say he has no faith. But he ha it doesn't understand what is truly, in the eyes of God, the worst evil of humanity. Secondly, that, that people might be out of a job and that old people might be lonely is certainly, yes, a, a lamentable thing, but these are not the worst evils of mankind. I mean, if you want to talk about sins against other human beings, what about the sin of abortion? 50 million in this country since the 1970s, and that's only in this country. It's happening all throughout Europe. What about the sin of contraception, which is so widespread that it's unspeakable? These are the great sins of humanity that, uh, that are either murder itself or participate in the notion of murder. Uh, and the perversion of, of uh, the multiplication of sins against Sixth and Ninth Commandment, the filth of movies, for example. These are things that are leading people to hell. I mean, that, that, that old people are lonely, yes. I mean, that's a terrible thing. But they might be lonely because they have no children or grandchildren because they were eating birth control pills at the, at, with the approval of their local pastor or parish priest. That's why they might be lonely. It used to be when you got old, you moved in with your family. There were many siblings who took care of the old people, and they were not lonely. They helped to raise the, the little children or the grandchildren. Now, because there are no children, yes, the, the old people are, are living in old age homes because no one will take them in. There, there, there is no one left to take them in because they were so selfish being on birth control for a long time, or perhaps they had abortions. And, and so that should be said. Uh, the, the second thing, unemployment. Well, is, is Bergoglio's Marxism going to help the situation? I mean, uh, it has, has, have Marxist countries been a, an economic success? Shall we look at Cuba as an economic success? Shall we look at the Soviet Russia as an economic success? The way it just decayed into, into economic you know, uh, failure in the 1980s? And so they couldn't take it anymore, and the whole system collapsed. I mean, is that what we're is that you know what is the the, the church supposed to do about that, except to underscore all of the traditional economic policies that were put forth by Leo the Thirteenth and other Catholic writers and thinkers to solve the problems of the modern world, and certainly the church should be doing that. But these are not. 
these are not uh, the, the worst problems of humanity. It just shows that he's a socialist, he's a humanist, he has no religion, he has no faith. Uh, he's, I mean, the UN could take care of those problems much more easily than Bergoglio. Yeah, some sort of what, I, what I'd ask people just to consider, in addition to what Bishop Sanborn said, is this: that you have someone who is putatively a pope who holds himself out as a pope, and you would expect that uh, when asked about the greatest evils in the world, he would talk precisely about the sort of things that uh, Bishop Sanborn mentioned. Uh, just uh, on the face of it, but know you uh, get something that is uh, purely humanistic, and you don't have to be a great theologian to figure out that that is not what the Pope is supposed to do. Mm -hmm. But he has a strong Marxist background. Uh, He praised his uh, communist teachers in in, where he went to school. He has a strong Marxist background. Well, in this, uh, Your Excellency Father, in this interview, he also praises liberation theology, and, and he actually talks about the uh, that there's there's some positives about communism. And, you know, we'll get to that in just a minute. I guess the question I would have for both of you, and see if I'm reading this wrong, and I'll, I'll be happy to stand corrected. But you know, when he says that the evils are youth unemployment and the loneliness of the old, are these evils or are these social and economic conditions? I mean, does this classify as a quote unquote evil? I mean, you know, we can talk about the the reason for youth unemployment and this this crumbling world economy, which is being fostered in by by the new world order, and uh, you know, many other factors. But are these evils? They're not moral evils; they're physical evils. And right. Certainly, I mean, it, it's legitimate to say that the church should be sensitive to the alleviation of the sufferings of the poor and the afflicted. I mean, that's true. They are physical evils, and yes, the church, that's part of the church's mission, to, to help somebody. I mean, the church always ran uh, soup kitchens or Catholic charities and to help people, even with physical evil. They ran hospitals. But to say that these are the great evils of the world, yes, they are purely physical evils. And physical evils are, are, are not even comparable to moral evils. Mm-hmm. Well, and... Uh, well... Go ahead, Father. No, I was just going to say, um, to uh, should we go on and uh, talk about uh, some nonsense? Well, that's what, I, that's what I was just going to going to uh, bring up, uh, Father. Since we've already set a bit of a humanistic, naturalistic tone, it, it, it um, I, I think the next one is is not surprising. Uh, his. Uh, Francis was asked about conversion uh, to true faith or proselytism, and he said, uh, quote, proselytism is solemn nonsense. It makes no sense. We need to get to know each other, listen to each other, and improve our knowledge of the world around us. Sometimes after a meeting, I want to arrange another one because new ideas are born and I discover new needs. This is important to get to know people, listen, expand the circle of ideas. The world is crisscrossed by roads that come closer together and move apart, but the important thing is that they lead towards the good, unquote. Um, so, again, so I don't know how you, you can get what any you clearer. end up with is you end up overthrowing the whole uh, apostolic mission of the church, proselytism, proselytism and conversion of people. 
uh, they speak sometime about um, our Lord saying, go uh, forth and teach all nations. Uh, and that's referred to as the uh, Great Commission sometimes. In other words, the, our, our Lord charges uh, the apostles to go forth and, and uh, to convert people, to bring them to the one true faith, to baptize them so they can uh, achieve salvation. And that is proselytism. And for Bergoglio to say that is nonsense, well, that statement is nonsense. It makes nonsense of uh, the great commission that our Lord gave. And then there's also this um, tone in his remark of uh, humanistic mumbo-jumbo, that you have to listen to needs. That was not part of what our Lord said. He said that you're supposed to convert people. But uh, these are 60s ideas that uh, you see recycled here, this sort of 60s humanism about uh, listening to human needs. Dialogue. Everything is dialogue. So you're you're supposed to go and dialogue with people and expect that they will be attracted to you because you dialogue well. I mean, this overthrows so many things. First of all, it overthrows the entire missionary effort of the Catholic Church from the time of the Apostles to you know, Vatican II. They, they would think of the conversion of the eunuch of Candace. That was, the, that was in the Acts of the Apostles or the preaching of St. Peter to the people of Jerusalem. Or St. Paul, all of the things that he went through in order to convert the Jews and the Gentiles of the empire to the Catholic faith. I mean, this is so basic. I mean, are we going to say, uh, we just celebrated the feast of the North American martyrs. These were young men who abandoned comfortable and rich France at the time to go over to the most appalling conditions among the Indians, the North American Indians, and with apostolic zeal, spent their lives in, in filth. I mean, just, just indescribable physical filth of the Indians and all sorts of moral uh, degeneration of the Indians and, and it, it tried to convert them and then they were put to death for it uh, and were eaten in certain cases. And and these are the people that were involved in solemn nonsense. I mean, this Christ of heaven for vengeance, that, that term, that, that to dismiss these people's lives and their martyrdoms for the sake of propagating the faith as solemn nonsense, and it doesn't make any sense. It also attacks the notion that the Catholic Church is the sole means of salvation. Because what motivates the missionary except to bring someone to Christ through the Catholic Church? The Catholic Church being the only way in which you can be attached to Christ. He is the head of the Catholic Church. Unless you are a member of the Catholic Church, you cannot be attached to Christ. That's what motivates these missionaries. Look at all of the missionaries of the 19th century. Look at Archbishop Lefebvre, who also quit a very comfortable family and 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 all the comforts uh, of the early 20th century in France. He quit all of that to go to Africa to bring the faith. It's attacked all of that. It, in two words, he destroys 
the entire mission and purpose of the Catholic Church for 2,000 years. And you, and know, you, you have to s- you have to say too that it's a um, again uh, this goes back to Vatican II this idea of ev- evangelization that the idea of uh, evangelization is that you go and you preach to everyone. The idea is not necessarily that you convert them, but that you preach to them. And you see that uh, idea of conversion, uh, even taken out of the, the prayers of the Novus Ordo, the colleagues of the Novus Ordo, they, they changed the uh, prayer for the propagation of the faith into one for the evangelization of peoples. And you end up the, with evangelization, which preaching the gospel was a means to an end. And the end was conversion and acceptance of the one true faith. But they've turned the means into a purpose uh, in and of itself because of this dialogue business. And another point on dialogue is this. This, again, is the uh, part of uh, 60s modernism, where you have basically dialogue puts truth and error on the same level. It's uh, as if... Uh, truth has something to learn from error, and it doesn't. But uh, this is typical when you hear the language of, of, of dialogue and listening to needs. Well, Father, uh, isn't sure this just a... I'm sorry, go ahead, Nicholas. I'm not even sure it's that 60s, though, because I remember growing up in the Novus Ordo in the 80s and 90s and being taught that like proselytism was a like a dirty word, a bad word. Um, mm-hmm. uh, although I, I wonder if some might try to object that in modern parlance the word proselytism implies a certain kind of uh, forced conversion versus evangelization. No, it's it's just another word for uh, converting people. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, proselytism does not mean putting a gun against someone's head. I don't think anyone understands it in that sense. But it's it means an organized effort to bring people into the Catholic Church, so and to give them solid arguments why they should abandon their errors and join the Catholic Church. That's what it is, and the Catholic Church has done that from the time of the apostles. Well, Father, wasn't this just you know really? I would say that this may be obviously the most blunt and egregious statement ever made on this topic. But uh, you know, if we go back to you know Wartiwa and Ratzinger, uh, this is uh, this is kind of a continuation of, of of both of their statements about, for example, the Jews have their own special path to conversion, and the Catholic Church isn't going to work on their proselyte. You know, they're not going to proselytize to the Jews because they they have their own special path to salvation. I mean, is this? Don't you see this as just a logical continuation of that? Absolutely well, he makes it, it, he makes it very clear, yeah, he, that um, what uh, Vojtila said in his uh, uh, sort of convoluted language, and what Ratzinger said in in his uh, sort of crafty modernist way, uh, this guy isn't smart enough to do that, so he just comes out and he says it. Right. Right. Yes, we're exactly. not seeing really anything new here. Really, nothing new that uh, from Vatican II. I mean, that differs from Vatican II. Nothing new that differs from any of the Novus Ordo pontificates, quote unquote. The uh, but he is bolder, and and he, uh, he he says things that that are not veiled. The others had enough cleverness to veil to a certain extent what they said, to a certain extent. 
but this one is is very very bold and you know as far as getting our message out uh, he's helping us a great deal I have to say uh, mm-hmm. but uh, in itself it's you know considered in itself it's an, it's absolutely appalling and what is most appalling I think is that the the numbness that you find among Catholics in reacting to him just pure numbness as if their their minds are are have turned into vegetables uh, they they will not see he's saying outrageous things outrageous things and particularly the Novus Ordo conservatives are just picking their heads down farther into the into the sand mm-hmm. until there's nothing left until the you know the <laughs> the body has to go next then the feet Right. You know, the, the, uh, that, that is most appalling. For those of you who are just joining us, we're just about 10 minutes past the bottom of the hour, and you are listening to Clerical Conversations on the Crisis Number 7 uh, with His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida, and Father Anthony Chicada, Assistant Pastor St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio. I remind our listeners once again the phone lines are open. We're queuing people up right now um, and we're probably going to start taking calls uh, somewhere after the top of the next hour. Uh, the phone number if you want to join us is 949-272-9417. Again, 949-272-9417. Moving along in this interview, uh, Your Excellency and Father, um, and this is, again, this next point that we're going to jump into. It's a continuation of the previous uh, the previous interview that was, that was released, and it, that is that good and evil are determined by individual vision, and this is uh, more, you know, more... More of the same of the atheist comments that if they obey their consciences, they can go to heaven. And this is his quote. Quote, each of us has a vision of good and evil. We have to encourage people to move towards what they think is good. Unquote. Well, let's start out by applying that to Adolf Hitler. <laughs> All right? I mean, why would that not apply to Adolf Hitler? Didn't he have a vision of what he considered good? Certainly. I mean, if you ask him, let's apply it to the people who put the planes into the two towers on 9-11. Didn't they think that they were doing good? If you interviewed them, if they were still alive, they'd say we were serving Allah. This is a holy act that we're doing. It, it is to say that what he, it's relativism, it's subjectivism, what he's saying, the dictates of a human conscience are as worthless as uh, as counterfeit money if it is false. If those dictates are false, it is worthless. The 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 only thing that it will help you, the way it will help you, is if you are acting in good conscience. That is, you don't know what the truth is through no fault of your own. That's the only way it will help. But as far as being a, uh, a guide or a source of human activity, it is totally worthless. It's zero. And the whole purpose of the Catholic Church is to teach us the objective truth. And we must conform our consciences to the objective truth which the Catholic Church teaches. Again, that's the purpose of the Catholic Church. But this all goes back to Vatican II, the supremacy of the human conscience over dogma, over the teachings of the Catholic Church. It really is nothing new, but he's just saying it in a very bold manner. And it's it's something, this is exactly the sort of thing that uh, the Obamas of this world love to hear. 
because it, it, it fits in with their whole uh, relativist system, which is based on uh, their individual conscience. So this, this uh, sums up in uh, two sentences uh, exactly what these people believe. No wonder this man is so popular. Yes, all of the legislation in favor of same-sex marriages and all of the other things connected with that are based on the supremacy of conscience. These people think they're doing the right thing. Who are we to say that they can't do that? It's, and, and opposed to that is the natural law, which which is objective, and where you would say, well, this is contrary to the natural law. Uh, uh, but no, the, the, uh, the conscience uh, dictates in other words, has supremacy over the objectivity even of the natural law, even of things that are so basic. Uh, you know, do you need to, uh, how basic can you get that a, a, like a nut and a bolt should be put together? What if your whole house were plumbed with uh, female parts or plumbed with male parts? And what would, what would happen when the water was turned on? I mean, we're getting down to the real basics here. But even though it is so obvious this attachment to the conscience as if it, it produces some kind of truth for us, which is pure subjectivism, has completely overwhelmed even basic common sense. And it is very scary because that opens the doors to all sorts of evils in the future. And of course, uh, Millard, given this relativism, it's not surprising to then read the quote that he has about what the reason for the incarnation was and, and i have to say this uh this quote sounds awfully john paul ish to me but uh he here he says quote the son of god became incarnate in the souls of men to instill instill the feeling of brotherhood all our brothers and all children of god unquote well there you have pantheism, like incarnational pantheism, uh, and pure modernism. Modernism says that God is in everyone uh, and that we discover him in our religious experience. And if we're speaking about the omnipresence of God in all things, of course, God is in everyone as he is in everything in the universe. But as St. Pius X points out, if you mean that there is a supernatural presence of God in all peoples and all persons, and that's what they mean, who reveals himself who, supernaturally to each person, he said that is pure modernism and leads to pantheism. So there you have incarnational pantheism, and, and he's stating it very clearly, and yet it does go back to J.P. That definitely it does. And, you know, then all we need is Beethoven's, uh, i mentioned Werden Bruder, I mean, uh, for the rest of it, that the purpose of the incarnation was to make all men brothers, and that all men are children of God. That's not true to say all men are children of God, not in a strict sense, because the children of God are those who have embraced the Catholic faith and who are in the state of grace. They are the ones that, that are, because... They are the adoptive children of God as Christ is the true Son of God. And you have to be attached to Christ as the, the Son of God in order to be a, an adoptive child of Christ. It is true to say that all men are creatures of God, and in a broad sense, children of God. 
but not in the strict sense and not in the in the theological sense not at all creatures of god would be much better everyone is a preacher but you are born an enemy of god you are conceived and born an enemy of god because you are in the state of original sin you are not an adoptive child of god when you are born yeah, so, but you know he's full of error there the purpose of the coming of christ was to free men from their sins not to make them brothers again the un could make us brothers we don't need christ to make us brothers well, yeah, well, yeah, well, and it, yeah, it seems like it's uh, maybe not even implicit, but explicit denial of original sin by by saying that the Son of God was incarnate to to make us brothers rather than to than to redeem us from original sin. Right. I mean, yes, it's an implicit denial of original sin. Uh, that, it's like, where does it's like say First Communion Catechism. <laughs> I mean, where is his evidence for that in Revelation, that the purpose of the Incarnation was to make us brothers? Could he please give us a quote from well, all, you know, please? Well, he might be able to give a quote from Redemptor Hominus. <laughs> and that's why St. Thomas said that, you know, he said the, the only reason for the Incarnation was to redeem man from his sins, because he said there's nothing else in, in, we have no other evidence from sacred scripture or any other revelation that, that indicates anything else. There is just no other motive that is given for it. So, you know, again, he's talking through his hat. He, he, he's, he's just repeating things that he learned in the 1960s uh, idiotic uh, theology books that were more like novels than theology books. Um, and he's just, you know, he, he has, he's completely out of contact. He, he's a thoroughly corrupted cleric that has become quote-unquote the Pope. And he's spewing out all of these things that he's learned for all these years. It well, is, it, it's not surprising. Is he even a cleric, though, Lord? He may have gotten a, a, a tonsure, a, a valid tonsure. He probably oh. got himself a valid tonsure along the way. So, But, you know, he, he's a man running around in a cassock, at least for now. Running around in a cassock. Uh, let's put it that way. <laughs> well, the next uh, the next topic of this, Your Excellency and Father, is um, where is, essentially he he just tramples all over his predecessors. I mean, the, this this statement is is so offensive to Catholics now. And I realize in the mind of most Novus Ordo Catholics that that the and maybe I'm being a little uncharitable there, but you know, most people believe. I know I certainly did when I was trapped in that system that essentially the papacy began in 1965. And that uh, mm -hmm. you know John Paul the you know the magnificent was the one that we turned to for uh, the ability to learn how to be Catholics and, and so he says here uh, quote heads of the church have often been narcissists flattered and thrilled by their courtiers the court is the leprosy of the papacy unquote which is just unbelievable um, your Excellency. <laughs> Take that one away. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, here we are dealing with it. It'd be like the the captain of the Titanic saying, you know, the real problem with the with the British uh, Admiralty is that there are too many courtiers. As the ship is sinking, and you know, the front of the ship is already underwater. I mean, that that there have there been courtiers at the papal court? Yes, of course there have been. 
Have there been popes that have been a little narcissistic? Of course there haven't been. Why, why even bring this up? What are you talking about? Your, your, your world is falling apart. The Catholic Church is a, is a disintegrating organization, and, and you're worried about papal courtiers. And he doesn't have courtiers. He doesn't have people around him that are looking for favors and careers. <laughs> well, you know, well, let him put on his glasses if he can't figure that out. Maybe that'll be part uh, of the stripping it, process, Your Excellency. <laughs> well, maybe he was a courtier. I mean, how did he get to be the Archbishop of of, uh, of Buenos Aires? You know, maybe he was uh, one of these people that he's talking about. And narcissistic, I think he's one of the narcissistic people in the whole world. I think he's so pleased with himself, he's as pleased as punch with himself. And, and uh, you know, lauds himself indirectly, and even sometimes directly, uh, by showing how different he is from everybody else. It really is, is a stomach-turning experience to watch it. I think he actually talks about his humility later in the interview, which doesn't <laughs> say much for your humility. <laughs> the the, well, the other is... thing, the other thing uh, on this particular point is that he is uh, he is sliming his predecessors, and uh, what he thinks he would accomplish by that this I'm not exactly sure, except to. Um, uh, foster a sort of contempt for contempt for the past and for the the uh, traditions of the church, and also to me it uh, shows that he's really an idiot who doesn't know anything about history, because how was the pope supposed to run the church in the Middle Ages, right, or, or the time of uh, Innocent the Third? You were supposed to run it as a monarch with a court. That was the way that you administered things. What do you expect, popular democracy or something at that point? So it, it, it shows the, uh, again, this is another uh, idiotic idea that's sort of been rattling around in his head, that he decided to, to speak about at this point, figuring that it would uh, slime his predecessors. Well, Father, let me ask you this question. I, I, I think one of the, uh, you know, that's kind of an open-ended statement. I mean, you can almost do a fill-in-the-blank. I mean, uh, you know, who do you think he's more likely to call a narcissist? If you leave the fill-in-the-blank, would it be St. Pius X or would it be John Paul II? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think John Paul II would be exempt, I think, at this point. So uh, he's he's, the same. he's slated for sanctity. So. Yeah, John no, he was he was extremely narcissistic. He was a big show off, uh, John Paul too. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, but you know, again, it's I think it's his hatred, this obsessive hatred that he has for the traditional faith and the traditional church. Uh, it's just an evil thing for him, uh, and uh, and he's constantly knocking it and. and uh, it means Pius XII and the Sadia Justitoria. Of course, that's what he's referring to. Uh, and, and all of the, the flabella and all of the things that actually pertain to the office, uh, not to Pius XII, but to the office. I mean, all the other popes did it too. It, all, of the, all of the insignia that they wear are part of the office, and a humble person just accepts those insignia because he realizes that he has stepped into the office. And he does what he's told. This is, this is part of the the paraphernalia of office. And 
a humble person obeys. He doesn't say, well, I'm not going to wear this, I'm not going to wear that. He, he obeys. He does. He, he goes along. That's a humble person. Well, well Justin, yeah, Justin mentioned uh, St. Pius X, and I know I've read specifically about St. Pius X that he, coming from a, you know, a modest farming village background, that he personally really disliked all the pomp and ceremony of the papal court, but he knew that, but, you know, he went along with it because that's what's expected. Yes, yes, he, uh, yes, uh, and, you know, he was more relaxed, certainly more than uh, Leo Thirteenth. Leo Thirteenth was the grand aristocrat, and he, he did run the Vatican that way, and, and uh, was somewhat unapproachable, you know, uh, something like a monarch that, uh, Pius X was more relaxed. Uh, people would come down from Venice that he knew, and he would uh, sit them down as if in a living room in the Vatican and come in and talk to them. <laughs> Just, uh, uh, his style in Venice was quite different, too. He would walk along the uh, walk around Venice and stop in on some priests around dinner time and say, What do you have for dinner? You know, and sit down with them and have a conversation at their table. Uh, that was his style, but that did not in any way alter his great dignity. I mean, he was never a slumber or, a, or a, somebody who, who brought down the, the very office. Another point about the papal office, uh, I think back to Paul VI, who started to do away with all of the uh, papal insignia. And there was a uh, French traditionalist, the Abbe de Nantes, who uh, wrote in one article about Paul VI when he discussed Paul VI abolishing all of these customs, he said that uh, Paul VI did not have the humility of his glory. In other words, he didn't uh, uh, submit to what he was supposed to submit to by accepting the papal office. Very good point. Yes. Well, uh, for anyone who's uh, just joining us, you are listening to Clerical Conversations on the Crisis, episode number seven on the uh, Restoration Radio Network. We're just uh, coming up on uh, the top of the hour, so we'll be opening up to phone calls uh, very soon. And tonight we're discussing Francis Jorge Bergoglio's uh, most recent interview, and... uh, my Lord and Father, we were, you were mentioning the hatred that uh, Francis uh, seems to exhibit for the traditional church, for traditionalists, for the, the old ways. And to, to me, this was um, brought forth again when he, this quote that he has about clericalism. And uh, he says, quote, it also happens to me that when I meet a clericalist, I suddenly become anti-clerical. Clericalism should not have anything to do with Christianity, unquote. Well, what you have to understand there is this is where one of us, Bishop Sanborn or myself, would step in as a, a translator of uh, 60s modernist speak. And what this, this code means... Uh, by criticizing clericalism is you're criticizing the traditional notion of the priest, priesthood itself. The idea that the priesthood imparts a character to the soul that somehow at ordination a priest becomes a, uh, a man set apart, that that's Catholic teaching, 
so on. So this is what we're dealing with here is we're dealing with a, a 60s code uh, that uh, rejects the whole theology, essentially the whole theology of apostolic succession behind this. And this was very popular in the 1960s. Uh, the condemnations that you would hear, for instance, uh, of the pipeline, what they call the pipeline uh, theory of holy orders and apostolic succession. The modernists simply didn't believe in that uh, anymore. So the, you, this clericalism is, is, is a code word, and that's what we're talking about here. Why go on about it? Again, I, I, I except to make that particular point. But but even not even not in code isn't it good to be a clericalist? Doesn't that just mean that you're you support the clergy? Yes, actually, the anti-clericals in the 19th century were anti-Catholics. That means that they were against the clergy of the Catholic Church. So, clerical, you know, to be clerical simply means uh, that you uh, uphold the priest as the. Uh, center of your life is uh, the person who is going to lead you to eternal life. Also, that term anti-clerical uh, refers to the role of the priest. Uh, the, they would consider a clericalist priest, a priest who wears his cassock, who is identifiable as a priest, who is saying his office, who is seen in the sanctuary, who prays, who, who has a, a, a supernatural life. The, the, uh, it is contrasted to the 60s priest who is in the sweatshirt and who is working in the slums and who's telling people that the, you know, the church exists in order to make them brothers and uh, who is uh, slumming in other ways, too, you know, uh, uh, as far as his general demeanor uh, and perhaps even worse than that, slumming. Uh, that's the, the contrast. So the, the traditional role of the priest in the church. Uh, I remember the uh, in, when I was in the seminary, they would criticize sacristy priests. That meant a priest in his cassock working in the church and saying his office in the church or the rosary. But that was anathema. That was evil. Uh, <laughs> you had to get out in the street and, and be with people. I, I, the, uh, I was just telling the seminarians the other day in a spiritual conference, we were talking about Thanksgiving after Mass. I remember as a child, the priest would come out of the sacristy and kneel in the sanctuary and make his Thanksgiving after Mass. As soon as Vatican II hit, the priest would walk down the aisle immediately after Mass and press the flesh with the people. He'd be uh, handshaking with the people. How are you? How's your dog? And uh, you know, everything, just like a Protestant minister. I remember that. That was one of the first things that turned me off about Vatican. And that's what they mean by clericalist priests, the ones that are in the sanctuary after they have said Mass. That's what he means by that. Well, I think we can move on here to the next topic of this, um, which is almost mandatory for any uh, any time a, a, a supposed pope opens his mouth since the 60s, which is the obligatory groveling in his, in his statements to the Jews. And um, this is, um, in fact, you can't get any more uh, obligatory groveling than the, the, the recent book that uh, Bergoglio did with uh, Rabbi Abraham Skorka. 
And I think this is a this is a quick moment for a shameful plug for his excellency seminary newsletter. Uh, a few months back, there was an excellent, excellent, um, you know, real uh, forensic uh, type of um, you know delving into this entire book by his excellency. And and, and for the listeners out there, I recommend uh, if you would. To go ahead and make a donation to the seminary for seventy-five dollars, or for this show, we can do it for a hundred dollars to you know, to the seminary, uh, and, and uh, you can get His Excellency's monthly monthly newsletter to, and this really helps, you know, lay out all the things you're seeing in print. And the quote here is uh, he's referring to Saint Augustine, and I, this is still unbelievable. He says. Quote, St. Augustine went through many vicissitudes in his life and changed his doctrinal positions several times. He also had harsh words for the Jews, which I never shared, unquote. Your Excellency? Well, it is true that St. Augustine did. He actually wrote a book, The Retractaciones, in, in, in which he did change certain things. But so did St. Thomas Aquinas change certain things. And well, practically all theologians, you know, have various editions of their works, and they might change this and that. But the, you know, he, to understand that, you have to think about what he said about doctrinal security. It's as if St. Augustine was all over the place, you know, that, that he, uh, which is simply not true. Uh, on certain minor issues, he may have changed his mind, just as St. Thomas Aquinas did as he got older. Uh, so, you know, the, the, it's a very misleading statement about St. Augustine. And Augustine was as solid as a rock in Catholic doctrine. Uh, and, you know, the, Augustine had harsh words about the Jews. So did Moses. Uh, so did St. Paul. So did St. Peter. Uh, the, you know, the theological, uh, so did practically every father of the church, St. John Chrysostom. Uh, all of them said negative things about the Jewish religion because... The, in the Catholic view, uh, the, the Judaism uh, in their rejection of Christ is, is an apostasy from their original role uh, as those who should have presented Christ to the world as the apostles did, as, as the those who did convert to uh, uh, to Catholicism did. But the whole people was supposed to present Christ, the Messiah, to the world. And that would be the that was their fulfillment and their original role. And uh, the uh, Saint Stephen also said some very nasty things uh, to the Jews. He was a Jew, of course, himself. And if you read in the Acts of the Apostles, his uh, his comments to to the Jews were very very negative. Now the Church does not hate Jews; it never did, uh, but it does want to convert Jews. It wants to bring them to the light of the gospel, as St. Paul tried to do. And in order to bring someone to the light of the gospel, you must point out to them where their errors are. The Church does not hate Protestants, but it does try to point out to Protestants where their errors are. And so St. Augustine was merely doing that. He was not in any way... I mean, how does... As Pius XI said, we are all spiritually Semites. That is our holy faith was is based upon the apostles, uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary, Saint Joseph, all of uh, Saint John the Baptist, who were all Jews, and who converted, who accepted the true Messiah. Our blessed Lord Himself was 
Jewish, uh, uh, from a Jewish birth. So, you know, we cannot, uh, the Catholic Church can never, ever uphold the idea that, that you know, we should hate Jews or that, that Jews should be despised or mistreated. But they are in error, and the Catholic Church does want to draw them out of error. And that's what St. Augustine was doing. He does not, Bergoglio does not want to draw them out of error. And that is his sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, of course, uh, he... Bergoglio takes it a step further than just saying he never shared these harsh words. Instead, he there's, there's uh, images on the internet of him as a cardinal uh, sharing the feast of Sukhoth with them. Yes, he actually yeah. did that recently. Uh, at the Casa Santa Marta, the the hotel he lives in in uh, the Vatican, with his Rabbi Skorka again, that it was the fall harvest festival, which is Sukkoth, the, the Jews. So the uh, uh, rabbis, rabbi buddy, came and spent a couple of days with uh, Bergoglio and the Santa Marta, and uh, they had kosher dinner together all the time, and um, the uh, rabbi. Uh, had to say certain prescribed uh, prayers of the Jewish religion uh, uh, during uh, table time, and then would uh, translate them, uh, translate the last prayer at the end, uh, to which Bergoglio and all the people around him would uh, would say Amen. But all of the courtiers, all of the courtiers around him would say Amen. Yes. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so. <laughs> I mean, you you have uh, you know uh, uh, involvement obviously there in false worship. You know, the, the, yes. uh, there's no question of that because that is it is considered false worship. Moral theologians say that the use of the Jewish rites and to participate uh, the, the use of the Jewish rites because they anticipate the Messiah uh, is objectively a mortal sin, and therefore to participate actively in in any Jewish right is a mortal sin. That's Catholic moral theology. And that would extend... I mean, some people would probably try to brush this away and say, oh, well, this is just like... This is just like saying grace after meal. Is that so objectionable? Well, it's no, an official ritual Jewish prayer. prayer. Mm-hmm. Yes. No, this is not thank you, God, or something like that. This is This is Jewish prayer. And, and uh, it is something that uh, kind of a uh, Catholic can do. Uh, and is it Jewish ritual as well? Well, I, I think so. I mean, that's the way it's, it seemed to be described. Uh, I, mean, I wasn't there, obviously, but uh, it seemed to be described as Jewish ritual. That it was not mm-hmm. some generic thanks be to God or something like that. Or, you know, uh, it was. Uh, it, it, it appeared to be from the description Jewish ritual because it was an observance of a Jewish holy day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I guess it, it goes without saying that uh, they, they wouldn't want to try uh, converting uh, the, the Jews. But uh, he also in regards to this uh, Italian atheist uh, interviewer, uh, Mr. Scalfari, um, uh, he, Francis said to him, quote, I don't have any such intention of converting his interviewer. 
and uh, went back again to this topic of uh, his, of the goal. He says our goal. I assume that he doesn't mean the papal hour, but he or we. He means the uh, Catholics in general, not to proselytize, right? But to listen to needs, desires, disappointments, despair, hope, and. Uh, and then he said, we must restore hope to young people, help the old, be open to the future, spread love, be poor among the poor. Yeah. We need to include the excluded and preach peace, unquote. Are, are you sure that someone didn't slip a Beatles song in there? <laughs> it sounds an awful lot like John Lennon to me. <laughs> Why do we need a Catholic church to do that? Yeah. You know, why don't we just, uh, how about the Salvation Army? They probably do all of those things a lot better than the Catholic Church. Mm. They're, they're organized for that sort of thing. Soup kitchens and, and uh, the stores that they have and, you know, distributing things to the poor. And, you know, why do we need the Catholic Church for that? Mm. Your Excellency and Father, we have a caller um, who's wanting to speak about this this idea of proselytism. And uh, she wants to ask the question about this this definition of uh, proselytism that uh, Bergoglio seems to be browbeating. Is that is that correct, Maggie? Uh, yeah, I just I've heard it before. Uh, good evening, Your Excellency and uh, Father Chicago, Justin. Um, but I had heard before um, when this interview came out. There was, it seemed like there was quite a few traditionalists and conservatives that were excusing Bergoglio from having any sort of there being any negative negativity with regard to that remark because it was accepted since basically 1960 that prophetism means something different than uh, trying to convert people. It meant converting within the context of, you know, um, forcing people, no, not forcing, but browbeating people into accepting the faith versus just converting them. Um, so in that context, his words would be, quote, unquote, acceptable. Well, well that, that is, again, a character. product of uh, well, go ahead, Father Scott. Uh, it's. Um, I think the defense is. Um, that's uh, the defense is based essentially on the '60s caricature of what the uh, goal of the missionary is, and by uh, presenting the idea of converting people is essentially a caric- caricature where you you uh, force people, you you twist their arms, uh, etc. Then you have this caricature at one hand, and you contrast this with the nicey nicey evangelization where you're not necessarily thinking about their conversion uh, because it doesn't really make any difference what they believe because God doesn't really care, and incarnational theology means they're going to have it anyway. So that, that's the uh, to uh, get to that uh, second proposition, uh, they have to engage in a character essentially a caricature of what uh, the missionary effort of the church was. Your Excellency? Yes, I was going to say basically the same thing. They consider uh, the idea that you objectively must join the Catholic Church in order to be saved as a type of putting the gun to your head. That That's, that's the falsehood of it. That's why it, they consider it a, a violence that you come in with the idea that you ought to convert because the Catholic faith is the one true faith, it is the one true church, and your salvation depends on your conversion. They consider that violence. 
they consider that an insult to these people who, again, according to the modernist system, have God in them to begin with and have their own experience of God, have their own dictates of conscience, which are supreme. So, they, And they consider the Catholic Church only to be sort of the best of, of the lot. They do not consider the Catholic Church to be the one true church outside of which there is no salvation, which is a Catholic dogma, as Pius IX pointed out, a very well-known Catholic dogma. They do not consider that. They have abandoned that dogma. They consider the Catholic Church to be the fullness of the religious theory, the, the best of the organized religions. Uh, and, you know, it really, it's like buying a Cadillac. Uh, you know, if you really want to aspire to a, a nice car, go out and get a Cadillac or a Lincoln or something else, well, that's joining the Catholic Church. And the only thing that the Catholic Church should do is about as much as a Cadillac dealer does, is, you know, put out his, his sign and, you know, come in, we have specials, and, 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 but nothing where, you know, unless you buy a Cadillac, you won't be able to get around town. <laughs> it, 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 uh, it's a question of preference and, and quality. We have the fullness. So that's Vatican too. Well, thank you for your call, Maggie. Uh, we're going to go ahead and move on here now. For those of you just joining us, you are listening to Clerical Conversations on the Crisis, and we are speaking with His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida. And we are also speaking with Father Anthony Chicada, Assistant Pastor of St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio. I think the best one to move on to now, uh, Your Excellency and Father, is this idea that the Church has to kowtow to the modern culture, which, again, is just no, nothing more than a retread of Vatican II. We have, you know, open windows and doors and, you know, bathroom doors and things like that. Uh, he no, says, well, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Vatican II, inspired by Pope Paul VI and John XXIII, decided to look at the future with a modern spirit and to be open to the modern culture. The Council Fathers knew that being open to the modern culture meant religious ecumenism and dialogue with non-believers. But afterwards, very little was done in that direction. I have the humility and the I'm sorry. I have the humility and the ambition to want to do something. Well, I'd agree with only half of the last statement. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm trying not to laugh. Yeah. They usually don't go together. It's sorry, yeah. but in most spiritual books, the humility and ambition are two opposites. Well, I, your Excellency, I think the thing that blows me away about this statement is essentially he's saying after 27 years of John Paul II, who wrote just about right. everything possible, that we still, you know, no one did anything about this, and now it's my time yes, to do something the, about the, it. Yes, kissing of the Koran. I mean, that was not, or the Buddha on the top of the altar being incensed by a Buddhist priest. I mean, uh, or or Ratzinger praying toward Mohammed, Mohammed's tomb. Uh, you know, th these are just a few of the things. I mean, John Paul, too, he, he participated in every single religion on earth. I mean, he, had, he was blessed by feathers. He got cow dung on his forehead. He, he drank some sort of sexual... Potion in in the Polynesia. Uh, he, uh, uh, you know, it, I mean, where do you stop? I think he offered some sort of snake skin in Ghana or one of those places in West Africa. Uh, the, uh, I mean, you, you name it, he did it. I mean, he well, everything but church. everything but the traditional mass, I think. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, I mean, for, for again, 
how stupid can Bergoglio be that nothing has been done up to now after the the ecumenical abominations that have taken place under Paul the Sixth, John Paul II, and Ratzinger? The that nothing has been done. I mean, talk about narcissistic. That all of those you know saintly papacies that we've just had, you know, they've just been dragging their feet. That putting the Buddha on the altar at Assisi, or you know, worshiping the the Great Thumb at Assisi, or worshiping fire at Assisi, was you know just foot dragging. This we haven't seen anything yet. Uh, I mean, what kind one, of a nut uh, is he? He's like a, an idiot. Say so one one does one does shudder to think of what he has in mind. <laughs> if that was if that was doing uh, if that was very little being done. Uh, yeah, I have to. I have to say, on a serious note, boy, I mean, it really doesn't sound good. You wonder what else he could come up with. But I'm well, sure he's got an idea rattling around in his head uh, for something that uh, is going to put the pedal to the metal for ecumenism and this religious dialogue he's so enamored with. Right. But remember, Father, he just said a minute ago, less than two or three points ago, he doesn't like narcissism. <laughs> Yeah, right. that's right. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right. Doesn't like well. that narcissism. Well, he's well. essentially saying, I'm, I'm going to save the day. I mean, I'm the man of the hour. I'm going to save the day. I have the humility and the ambition to do it. And Everybody the else. But for, yeah, the humility. I mean, he's got tons of it. Yeah. <laughs> well. Obama said it. Obama, see, he said it. <laughs> Obama said he has, he has tremendous humility. So this is the, yeah, you know, we're... It's so funny. I mean, it really I, he's one of the masters amusing. of the spiritual life, I think. Barack. He's the one saying, you know, who who embodies the teachings of Christ the best, you know? I mean, boy. Yeah. What Didn't he write the yeah, steps yeah. of humility and pride, I think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, um,. And uh, we laugh, and, uh, you know, we actually, some listeners have complained that they don't like our gallows humor, but really, I I think in this day and age, if you can't laugh at tragedy, you're never going to laugh. Yeah, I'll tell you. I don't don't think it's laughing at tragedy. I think these things are really humorous. I mean, they are so outlandish that they they don't even hold up at all to, to right reason in any way. You know, I think they are humorous. Really, I don't think we're being flippant. No, it's it's um, uh, such the, the underlying ideas are so crazy and so irrational and so incongruous uh, to hold. That's why um, so much of it seems actually strange and and, and uh, funny. Now, Monsignor Knox wrote a, a series of essays called uh, Essays in Satire, where he looked at some of the uh, religious errors of his age in a satirical way, and uh, it's uh, uh, quite quite effective because it it shows how ridiculous certain ideas are. He had a, uh, one on the ecumenical movement uh, that brought out all of the the idiocies in it, and then he uh, applied the principles of modern scripture scholarship to the Sherlock Holmes stories. Uh, and uh, and ended up uh, <laughs> trying to look for the real Sherlock Holmes, 
and then uh, concluding that there wasn't one author, but there were many authors, and this was the faith reflection written down of the early Baker Street community. Uh, but in in doing this and uh, exaggerating these uh, these false ideas, I think he, he made a a really good point. Mm-hmm. It's very effective. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, uh, moving on with um, plumbing the depths of uh, this interview, uh, he Francis. There you go again. Francis has some commentary on. Uh, the uh, the church and politics and uh, involvement in the public sphere. He says that, quote, I have already said that the church will not deal with politics, unquote. And then he uh, goes on to say, quote, I say that politics is the most important of the civil activities and has its own field of action, which is not that of religion. Political institutions are secular by definition and operate in independent spheres. All my predecessors have said that all my predecessors have said the same thing for many years at least, albeit with different accents. I believe that Catholics involved in politics carry the values of their religion within them, but have the mature awareness and expertise to implement them. The church will never go beyond its task of expressing and disseminating its values, at least as long as I'm here. Unquote. So the idea well, essentially is the church should have no its ideas should have no influence in the public sphere. So the whole idea of the social kingship of uh, Christ uh, and putting Christian uh, Christians striving to put Christian principles into law systems of nations is something that goes out the window. But this again is the typical Vatican II uh, idea because the state is fundamentally supposed to be uh, indifferent and uh, respect religious liberty, that is to say, respect error. So the church is uh, prevented from, from acting in these spheres. Yeah, I mean, well, that the Catholic Church is just one of many religions that sort of has a booth at, at the fair, and uh, that the state has to keep all of the booths open and recognize everybody and be fair at the fair. And... Uh, and uh, uh, that, that's the ideal. It, it contradicts Pius XI and the entire history of the Catholic Church, uh, the entire attitude of the Catholic Church throughout history. Well, well that's uh, what, what, what I was thinking when he says all my predecessors uh, have taught this. Is this a tacit admission that that there's a, that the Vatican II papacy is separate and apart from the Catholic Church's papacy? Or do we think he went through yeah. the Denzinger? Carefully look at the quotes, you know. <laughs> he probably well can't read it probably first yeah. of all, but secondly, the uh, uh, but uh, I mean the only thing that you that you could say is that the, the Catholic Church has always said that yes, the state has its own sphere and the church has its own sphere, but he does he fails to add that the Catholic Church also teaches that there should be union of church and state, and that the state should. Uh, uh, favor and promote the ends of the church in society, uh, and should uh, is also subject to the church in, in regard to morality and, and public uh, uh, public morals, and, and, and that there is a uh, an indirect subjection of the state to the church because the church's mission is higher than that of the state, and also that the human being is composed of body and soul 
and therefore the two two entities that take care one of the body, the other of the soul, should be united. That is the Catholic doctrine. Uh, he, you know, to say all of his predecessors think the way he does is just pure nonsense. That is solemn nonsense. Solemn nonsense. Hmm. Well, I think moving on here to the next topic um, is, and this is the point that kind of struck me as well. We, we talked about this as a kind of a pseudo mysticism and this this spiritualist pantheism and whatnot of you know of of Teilhard and and I have no doubt that uh, if they were alive that uh, you know Teilhard de Chardin and and um, Yves Congar would be lined up to probably have you know papal pom poms on cheering on you know Bergoglio and all these all these things he's saying I, the, that may be the better endorsement than Obama but I'm not quite sure at this point but anyway he says. He says, from my point of view, God is the light that illuminates the darkness, even if it does not dissolve it, and a spark of divine light is within each of us. In the letter I wrote to you, you will remember that I said that our species will end, but the light of God will not end, and that at, excuse me, and at that point it will invade all souls, and it will be in, that it will be all in everyone. Unquote. Now, I mean, here again, this is this is you know modernist newspeak in a new language and whatnot. But this is the one thread that I see, and this goes back to the documents of Vatican II. This obsession with the light, the light, the light. Uh, what uh, what can be said about that, Your Excellency? Uh, what he's saying is pure modernism, as uh, as expounded by Saint Pius X. I mean, it's, it's textbook modernism that you have that God is in every man, just as I, as I said before and that he uh, reveals himself to every man, and every man has a religious experience. Even the atheist has a religious experience. That's what Runner, you know, Runner called the atheist the anonymous Christian. Uh, and uh, they, uh, you know, that, that all people are religious by nature in the sense that they all have God in them, and that organized religions are merely expressions of this God in us and that uh, eventually it will all come together and we'll all be brothers and the whole human race will be united. I mean, to me it sounds like Antichrist, frankly. Uh, the, this uh, union, uh, it sounds like the religious aspect of the Antichrist. Uh, there will be a political and economic aspect of Antichrist, but there will also be a religious aspect. And I think all of these pre excuse me, post-Vatican II popes, quote-unquote, are precursors and prophets of the Antichrist. I, I firmly believe that. They are preparing his way. They are his uh, John the Baptist. And uh, in my opinion, that's what he's referring to. Now, you know, it's in that typical liberal talk where you don't know exactly what they mean, but I think that's what he's referring to. Well, for uh, anyone who's uh, just joining us, uh, we're getting near the end of our show. We're at the bottom of the second hour, about an hour and a half in. You're listening to Clerical Conversations on the Crisis on the Restoration Radio Network, and we're joined by uh, His Lordship uh, Bishop Donald Sanborn and Father Anthony Chicata discussing the most recent uh, interview given by the current uh, Vatican II papal claimant, uh, Jorge Bergoglio, also known as Francis, and uh, I just remind our listeners that if you want to call in, if you have any questions about this interview, uh, please uh, call us. The number is 949-272-9417. Uh, 
Again, that's 949-272-9417. And, uh, my Lord and Father, I, I think we've gotten to the juncture, juncture in the show where it's time for the money quote, the, the one that got this whole thing started that Father uh, Chikata mentioned at the beginning, I, th- I think, uh, about the, the no Catholic God. The, the, the quote is, quote, I believe in God, not in a Catholic God. There is no Catholic God. There is God, and I believe in Jesus Christ, his incarnation. Jesus is my teacher and my pastor, but God, the Father, Abba, is the light and the creator. This is my being, unquote. Um, so, uh, my Lord, what do you have to say about that quote? Well, to say that there is no Catholic God, it to me is an apostatical statement. It's an apostasy. It's the giving up of the Christian religion altogether. Uh, first of all, it should be it should be established that there is only one true Christianity, as Pius XII said, and that is uh, Catholicism. Uh, and so, to say that there is no Catholic God means that there is no God of Christianity. Uh, it means that the God that is described in the credo of the Mass doesn't exist. Uh, the the credo that we sing on Sunday or the Apostles' Creed that we say, that God doesn't exist. That That is apostasy, to say that he doesn't exist. Uh, how do you explain that with uh, in regard to or in comparison to what God said in the Old Testament? I am the Lord thy God. Thou shalt not have strange gods before me. There is a personal God who is different from strange gods. Now, he is saying that he doesn't believe in the Catholic God. There is no Catholic God. As if the descriptions of God in the Old and New Testament and in the teachings of the Church do not apply to any person or or any, any personal God. Let's put it that way. Uh... That is apostasy. I, I don't see any other way to take that statement. It, it, is, it is, again, a, a statement from, from someone who reports to be the, a Roman pontiff that cries to heaven for vengeance. It does. I, I, I'm just, to be a little bit of a devil's advocate, my lord, I, I can hear people saying, well, he's not denying that there's God, because he says already in the quote there's God. He just... I mean, I, I'm having a hard time trying to twist my mind into the mode of thinking of people that would try to defend this comment, but... If he is not the Catholic it, God, there is no God. The only God that exists is the God of Catholicism. He is the true God. If it is not the Catholic God, then there is no other God. He wants the the whole... If you take the whole quotation, he believes in a generic supreme being that is seen differently by everybody. This goes back to the old Baal worship in the Old Testament. Baal simply means Lord, a generic Lord. And every little village in the Middle East there had their own Baal. Some of them actually worshipped flies as as their Baal. Uh, and we know that, that the Baal worship was something that was absolutely anathema to the Jews and anathema to Almighty God. The the uh, I mean God in the Old Testament was constantly reminding the Jews of the fact that He 
is the true God and that the other gods uh, of the peoples around them were false. All of the gods, uh, 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 the, the strange gods, are demons, it says in, in, the, in, the, uh, in this psalm. The, the, it is so basic, again, I mean, this goes back to the, to the proselytism comment. This is so basic to sacred scripture, to the teaching of the church, to, to everything that we are about as Catholics. This, this, this destroys the very foundations of Roman Catholicism. Say that there's no Catholic God, that that that, that the the God of Heaven does not correspond to what we believe as Catholics. Well, what what can I say? Yeah, there truly is no defense for this. I mean, um, <laughs> I've even seen some of the comments, Your Excellency, on. Uh, on the internet, it just the brief time I've had to research what the blogosphere is saying, and I I read a, an interesting quote from uh, the uh, the blog Father Z, where he says, "I'm having to, <laughs> after reading this quote, I'm having to try and talk people off the cliff, and I'm not sure I can do it." <laughs> that, that cliff is state of acantism. That mm-hmm. and, and you know, the more he opens his mouth the more he is pointing in our direction because any reasonable person would say that man is a is an apostate for that statement. This may be I mean, uh your actual statement, this may be a good time. We got an email from who a a a person who identifies himself as a Novus Ordo priest. Um and this was this was an email directed to both of you. It says, Dear Bishop Sanborn and Father Chicada, I was ordained in nineteen eighty three and I am serving a parish in, in Ireland. In the light of the crisis engulfing the post-Vatican II Church, which now seems to be accelerating at a dizzying speed with the arrival of Pope Francis on the scene, and given the recent appalling interviews, how do you see all this playing out in the immediate future? What will it do to the post-conciliar church? I ask this question because I see a terrible tension building. The liberal diocesan establishment loves Francis, and many simple Catholics seem at best taken in by it all. But there is another group of serious-minded Catholics who are truly appalled and alarmed at this papacy and the damage it is already inflicting. I know the future is hard, if not impossible, to predict accurately, but how do you see all this playing out? I truly enjoy listening to your analysis, and please, God, we will all live to see the time when Christ will restore his church. Best wishes, Father Robert. And I'm omitting his last name. It was in the email, but he didn't put it at the very end, so I'm not sure I want to give out the full name. Well, what I would predict is that Vatican II, I would say, is is an apostasy from the Catholic faith. I mean, it has all of the elements of apostasy. It is to change the church to fit the modern world, which is essentially to alter it substantially and to destroy it. And that we have seen over the past 50 years a gradual implementation of Vatican II, this apostasy. But because the strength of the church was so great under the pontificates, particularly from Pius VII to Pius XII, we had a series of popes who were great, perhaps the greatest series in history, for, uh, with the exception of maybe the early times, the early martyrs, but a series of popes who were just wonderful and great, and that they gave such strength to the church, such force and power, that the church has been coasting, so to speak, the institution of the church has been coasting on that. Uh, but we are seeing with Bergoglio more of the rot. We are seeing more of the rats on the deck, so to speak. They, they are in the hold of the ship, and now they're coming up more and more to the top. And it is a rotting corpse 
uh, and it is getting more and more rotten. There, at a certain point, every Catholic is going to have to say, I'm going to go with the rot, or I'm going to resist and be Catholic. He's got to make that choice at a certain point. Bergoglio is merely accelerating that choice and uh, is, is alarming a lot of people. They had arrested under Ratzinger, at least, or at least they thought, because Ratzinger wore enough pretty vestments to reassure them that, and he also gave license to the traditional mass to reassure them that you know they could eke out an existence in this new religion. But Bergoglio is cutting all of that off, both in his attacks upon the traditionalists and his actually suppression of the traditional mass for this Franciscan order. That is a uh, for those Franciscans. Uh, that is a portend of of the future. This, this is uh, this is a radicalization. He is the first one to be a product truly of the Novus Ordo. He was a Novus Ordo seminarian in the 1960s. He is a product of the 60s. He's a product of Vatican II. The others were products of the traditional church. And so they had a certain amount of, let's say, sense or anchoring in the traditional church. This one is Vatican II in full bloom. And, and the next one is going to be worse. So the the uh, we're just seeing really Vatican II coming to fruition. We're seeing the blooming of Vatican II in Francis. That's all. So I, I think that everyone will have to make the choice sooner or later, and there will be actually very few who will choose for Catholicism. Uh, I uh, another thing I would add uh, to that is this is bound to accelerate because of the. Uh, force of, of modern communication, uh, instantaneous uh, communication, that uh, we've seen already how uh, Bergoglio's statements are, you know, subject to uh, analysis, and we we see the the uh, uh, the consequences of that. Uh, that has the good effect of making people like uh, this father in Ireland. Uh, uh, more aware of the uh, radical uh, break between what this man teaches and uh, the Catholic faith. And that will, I think, will mean an acceleration, an acceleration of the process as uh, Bergoglio says more and uh, more things, and he almost can't help it, that will... uh, put into practice the logical consequences of Vatican II, and that will be very, very destructive indeed. But the only solution for the Church, as we always say, is to dump Vatican II, because that is the the source of all the problems. That when you you, uh, dig uh, underneath the surface, uh, this is where the problem uh, started. Well, um, thinking of uh, where things are going and uh, re- reactions that uh, various groups or people are having, of course, uh, I-, I don't know if either you, Lord, or Father read, the, uh, I think it was today or yesterday, the Society of St. Pius X has now issued their uh, um, reservations, shall we say, about the... Uh, Canonization for John Paul II and uh, John the Twenty Third. Um, 
although they, they've, aside from this, and although it's a very weakly worded, uh, so I say it's no more than a reservation, with, of course, the mandatory mention of Archbishop Lefebvre thrown in there to... Um, but overall, the Society of St. Pius X has been quite quiet about uh, this Francis, haven't yes, they? It's almost as if they've turned into Trappists, you know, with a vow <laughs> of silence or something. <laughs> it's, I, I have to say that it's um, very difficult to figure out. It's sort of like the old science uh, during the Cold War of Kremlinology, that you would try to figure out, you know, what the Kremlin leaders are thinking, what they're going to do or not going to do. Uh, so the, they've said next to nothing on this. So you think on one hand, well, are they still negotiating somehow behind the scenes? Uh, and I've heard that uh, from uh, people who have contacts with their priests who say that the priests have, in effect, been given instructions to say absolutely nothing about Bergoglio. Mm. Obviously, that makes for a problem, again, because of modern communications like this and the Internet. Obviously, their laypeople follow the press, and they can see for themselves how non-Catholic Francis is. You know, yet they have his picture in their churches, his name is in their canon, and so on, and it doesn't... So so, uh, they they are, in fact, aware of the problem. Um, I did not see, Nicholas, this... Uh, uh, latest thing about the canonization of JP2. What I did see is I'm uh, on one of their mailing lists, and uh, I noticed that, uh, in fact, I, I tweeted to this uh, effect this past week that uh, their mailing at the beginning of the week was uh, devoted to the big question that all traditional Catholics. Uh, seem to be talking about, which is, when will the Pius X Capuchins be coming to the United States? In other words, they were avoiding the issue. But it Mm -hmm. seems that uh, today they have come out with uh, a um, uh, a couple of mild uh, articles that were published on their French site, uh, Dici, expressing, uh, you know, reservations about uh, what Bergoglio said about the traditional Mass. But not much really beyond that. Well, if I could venture an opinion, Father, I personally I'd be astounded if there were any negotiations going on, just be, because Francis has clearly shown he has no interest whatsoever in any brand of traditionalist. I just wonder if it isn't a, a don't talk about Francis because more of our faithful might become set of a contest or they might wake up and smell the coffee if uh, they. Uh, learn more about what's going on, and silence is the only way to keep them uh, from uh, going to that most evil of all evil uh, things. Or perhaps they uh, could simply be hoping that he's going to die fast, and that they would get someone else who's a little more favorable to them. I mean, uh, I could see something like that as well, so it's it's better to say nothing, talk about the Capuchins and the weather, and don't mention really what's going on. So it's, it is, it's difficult to figure out, but we were talking among ourselves. Imagine what uh, Archbishop Lefebvre would have said about the no Catholic God quote. Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, oh. He would have called press conferences. He would have blasted uh, Bergoglio out of the water verbally if uh, if he had been alive and heard that. I mean, I, I, I know he just would have blasted him out of the water. Uh, Your Excellency. And, and, uh, 
Yes. Uh, so do you Hello. think that would have made the hot summer of 76 look tame in comparison? That would have made the hot summer of 76 look like the Arctic Circle. The the uh, no, he he. I just know the man. I mean, because uh, those things just riled him. Those statements, uh, and rightly so. Bishop Fellay has a pedestal. I mean, th- that organization has been so much in the news in the past, you know, forty years. He has a pedestal. If he said, "I'm going to make a statement about Bergoglio's interview," the whole world would listen to him, and he should be up there every day denouncing what Bergoglio says. I mean, that's part of our profession of the faith. The faith has to be defended. That that Bergoglio says there's no Catholic God, and where is Bishop Fele? Where is he? Where is Why is he silent? Why doesn't he denounce that with both barrels as, as an apostasy? I think their mm-hmm. silence is, is a scandal, in my opinion. And I really don't see the resistance... SSPX, the uh, the Bishop Williamsonites, saying anything either. Where are they? They're concerned about who's loyal to Archbishop Lefebvre. You know, and, and the, the, you know, why are they not attacking the modernists? They're, they're so concerned about their own little world of SSPX. Attack the modernists. And, and yeah. you know, we are the only voice that is being raised, and our voice is very, very faint because we don't have that pedestal. Our pedestal is, is your radio program. <laughs> you know, we don't have a, 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 a worldwide pedestal the way they do. If Bishop Williamson got up and said, I'm going to say something about Perdolio, uh, the whole world would be there listening to him. Mm-hmm. Well, Your Excellency, well, yeah. I know uh, a couple of people who are, are you know, affiliated with that, and, and they're, they're, I guess, their opinion on this is that the reason why the silence is is because they have nothing else to say. They can't say anything because if they do, they would have to embrace a set of a contest position, and that would all of a sudden go against what they believe was the line of Archbishop Lefebvre, and since that's where everything you know begins and ends, that uh, they don't know how to handle this. They simply don't know how to handle this. It's like yes, being sort they, of pummeled, you know. Right. Uh, exactly. And, uh, but I, I notice, you know, I get uh, the comments of uh, Bishop Williamson, and uh, every every week it, it's another uh, internal uh, analysis of what's going on in the SSPX. And, you know, I, I think that they're just lost in a forest, their own little forest, about that whole issue, and, and they have lost contact with the real big issues. Well, I agree with you on that. Totally, Your Excellency. I mean, I, I know that, uh, you know, the folks here at True Restoration, we've... You know, we've commented on that several times, and actually, you know, reached out. It's it, it's saying, you know, you need to get back to preaching on these key issues, not you know, not not losing yourself in this whole this whole internal struggle because it's really putting people off. But um, mm-hmm. yeah. I would yeah, remind well, listeners, yeah, yeah, yeah Stephen and I, both as former editors of Bishop Williamson, have both uh, written to him, making mm-hmm. that entreaty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, He's right. a powerful speaker and, and a, yes. a, a powerful thinker too, uh, and uh, he could say some very appropriate things about Bergoglio. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, he's into mente vacantism. In order to protect their system, he, he espouses mente vacantism that these people are incapable of being heretics because they don't, they have no notion of truth. They don't know what truth is, and they, you know, which again, I would say that would be a whole other show to talk about that, but. 
Right. You know, they, they, it, the whole thing is protecting their system. Their system is intrinsically flawed, but they need to protect that system. And and they don't want to become Sedevacantus because Archbishop Lefebvre was never a Sedevacantus. And, and it all goes back to Archbishop Lefebvre. I personally think that if Archbishop Lefebvre heard him say, there's no Catholic God, he would have been a Sedevacantus. I have no doubt about that at all. He would have mm. said, they're right. That he is, he's no pope. Right. right. I'm sure yeah. of that. Well, well f- following sure. on that, my lord, and maybe as somewhat of a wrap up, it so I just it seems to me that some people might try to criticize everything we've been talking about on the show. Or is this just exaggerated set of a contest propaganda that we've been putting out on on this show, <laughs> or uh, or is no, this uh, if have, we've been uh, fair? We have shown the evidence, and we have drawn legitimate conclusions from the evidence. I don't think we're doing any exaggerations. We have quoted the quotes as they are. We are, are not uh, characterizing anybody. We're just drawing conclusions from what these people have said. Uh, I think the characterizations are on the other side, that, that people are, are turning a blind eye to what is facing them very clearly and in broad daylight. Mm. And, and I would uh, remind listeners... Sorry, Justin, but uh, before I lose the thought, uh, Father Chicata, were you reading? Um, I think you mentioned you're reading something from uh, Sandro Magister. Uh, yeah, yeah who's the, the name, writer but... for um, uh, uh, Espresso, uh, which is an Italian uh, newspaper, and uh, when also he, he wrote a lengthy he, article called, did he, "Did he smell the coffee?" That was, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> wake up and smell the coffee. <laughs> the espresso. No, so uh, uh, he uh, does a, a major analysis of um, Francis's recent pronouncements, and he says that Francis has uh, really unveiled the true program as his his pontificate, and he calls it the uh, calls it the Francis trans- transformation, that the. Uh, uh, original interview that uh, we talked about, that this most recent thing uh, with um, Scalfari uh, and uh, his subsequent interview with him and another uh, letter that he uh, wrote to a, a, a atheist, that all these sort of outline, outline the program of his uh, pontificate. And uh, it is uh, pretty much, and he's a perceptive guy, it's uh, pretty much as we have described it. That's his his uh, uh, contention. So it's not uh, as much. It's not really that we are uh, exaggerating things. That this is a uh, really a, a legitimate reading of it. Uh, on the other hand, too, uh, you know, Bergoglio is uh, was. Uh, speaking in public, knows that he is dealing with uh, public perceptions, and he knows the kind of impression that uh, that he's going to give. So it's it's uh, as was said earlier. I mean, he is. Uh, there haven't been all sorts of denials from the Vatican press office uh, about the spin and the interpretation that the secular press has has uh, put on what Bergoglio said. So it's uh, our, our reading of that. This is a. Uh, um, is reasonable. Is a reasonable reading that is in conformity with conformity with the evidence. 
with Francis's actual words. Mm-hmm. Well, I would remind listeners here we're coming up on the uh, the the two hour mark here on our broadcast, and we have just a, just a few more minutes to cover here after the top of the hour, no more than maybe ten minutes or so. So at at the top of the hour, nine o'clock Eastern time, you're going to lose the live feed. But if you wait just a couple of minutes, maybe even five minutes or so, the uh, the RSS feed will be. Um, We'll have the the full show you can download and catch the last few minutes if we run over the top of the hour. There was just a couple more emails, uh, your father, uh, your excellency and father, that that uh, some readers had had uh, emailed me here in the first part of the week, and uh, this one comes from a gentleman uh, whose name is Frank Balkus, who says he knows both of you and served mass for you years ago in uh, Redford, Michigan, when you were with the society. And his question was, Your Excellency and Father, do you find it strange that Bergoglio is both a Franciscan and a Jesuit? It seems uh, that does seem a bit strange, but I didn't. He's a Franciscan, or is it just he's taking the name of Francis in the Franciscan spirit? Well, he's a Jesuit. I mean, right, he's a member of the Jesuit order, so he's not really a Franciscan. It's just that he has a. Uh, 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 devotion, quote-unquote, to Francis, mostly, I think he said, because he loved birds and other things, and, and you know, he uh, all humanistic notions of St. Francis, you know, the, sort of the, the statue that you see in people's gardens uh, notion of St. Francis. Uh, so I, I think that's all it is. He's a, a, a Marxist a slum priest, uh, and therefore St. Francis, because he was poor, and uh, you know, therefore, he's the the Marxist slum priest patron. Uh, that's mm-hmm. all. Uh, I don't think there's anything else Franciscan about him. Yeah. I mean, uh, okay. You know, well, the uh, um, uh, my comment on that would be that uh, I I think that it's um, an interesting point that Frank uh, brings up that he's a, a Jesuit who keeps on going on and on about Francis, and one of the things that is I suppose neither here nor there as far as doctrinal issues goes, but part of uh, my experience as a a member of a religious order was that uh, it was very uh, considered very strange if, say, when you were a member of the Cistercian Order, as I was, that you took, say, a great interest in the Carmelite spirituality. In other words, you uh, were a member of a religious order because you were interested in and attracted to the spirituality and the traditions of a particular order. Those who ended up, uh, that I knew, for instance, in the Cistercian order, uh, who took interest, let's say, in other orders, like the uh, Redemptorists or like the Carmelites, uh, really sort of did so out of uh, boredom and uh, dissatisfaction with what they already had. So, as I say, from a doctrinal point of view, that's near neither here nor there. But I mean, if I, if he can, uh, Bergoglio can, uh, you know, do psychologizing of other people. I certainly don't feel inhibited from doing a little psychologizing of him. Maybe he got bored with being a Jesuit and decided that uh, uh, Francis might be more attractive. Mm. Okay. And then the one last question here addressed to both His Excellency and Father. Um, This one was from a person who wished to remain anonymous, and it says, It seems clear that Bergoglio is heading quickly to the one-world religion. Do you think this is so? Yeah, 
Yes, I do. But I think all of the post-Vatican II popes uh, were heading quickly toward it. Uh, I think certainly that's the goal. That was the purpose of Vatican II. That was the stated purpose of all of those uh, back in the 18th century who wanted to transform Catholicism. Uh, to make a one-world religion, uh, what they call the Unam Sanctum, the, the, the one church, you know, the one holy church, so to speak. Uh, this goes back decades and centuries. Uh, the transformation of all religion into you know, ecumenical bodies that will eventually dissolve into one great religion. And, uh, of course, yes, there's no doubt about it. Yeah, the key to the whole project is you have no dogma. That you have different uh, different traditions uh, that are uh, you know some I guess under the post-Vatican II dispensa- uh, dispensation might have fullness or others might have less fullness, but all of them are are equally good. And the glue of it, uh, the glue of a religion which should be dogma, is not there. And that's how you achieve a um, one-world religion. That it, it ends up being reduced to uh, national or religious traditions and uh, internal feelings and sentiment, and uh, no dogma, no belief. That's what he said. We have to listen to people, listen to their needs. You know, there's no dogma there. And then the big problems of the world are the loneliness of the ages and the unemployment of the young. Mm-hmm. Everybody can agree on that, and everybody can agree to go and listen to the needs of people. I mean, he is erasing the last vestiges of Catholicism from the post-Vatican II religion, erasing them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One more question here that I just, uh, I thought we got to the last question, but uh, I missed this one here. He says, Your Excellency and Father, I read the interview. Believing in the complete supremacy of conscience appears to deny original sin. One could not form proper morality or behavior if one is in a state of sin. Islam and Eastern philosophy both deny original sin. Is Francis moving this quote-unquote Christianity in this direction officially, or is he conforming what is already practiced by many Catholics? Thank you, Keith. I would disagree with what he says, though, that even in a state of sin, you can form a right conscience by natural law. Uh, St. Paul says that. Uh, you, you could still, uh, the natural law is available even to a pagan. So you could form a right conscience, uh, and when I say right, I mean uh, conformity with the truth, by natural law. So I would disagree that, that the state of sin would prevent you from forming a right conscience. So, you know, I, I would, I, I think uh, I can't answer his question because I fundamentally disagree with his premise. Father? Yes, I uh, I would say the same thing. I mean, you uh, start with, uh, you have to start with a natural law. And uh, someone who uh, is not a Christian can at least follow that. Mm-hmm. And also, even a Catholic in the state of mortal sin still has his conscience. He knows the law of God. He knows the Ten Commandments. He knows the teaching of the Church. He still has a, a conscience that functions. You know, the state of sin does not obliterate conscience. But what he may be more, uh, what the correspondent may be getting at a little more is, uh, too, the fact that original sin is uh, something that was not talked about very much 
uh, under the Vatican II theological system, something that, that is uh, uh, basically ignored. Mm-hmm. I think Ratzinger openly denied it. He said it was some sort of invention of scholastics, or, or uh, he said something in one of his books denying original sin. Well, yeah, I would you know I would add to that uh, if I may you know to to address this uh, this individual here when he says is this what is already practiced by by many Catholics? Uh, Rorate Celli just just released or just just posted on the blog uh, today. Uh, there was a survey by the, by the Religious News Service, and, and this is what it says: "Is quote the survey released Friday, October the fourth by." Uh, Quinnipiac University shows that two in three, sixty-eight percent of adult Catholics, questioned said they agree with the pontiff's observation that the church has become too focused on issues such as homosexuality, abortion, and contraception. Now, a new poll indicates that American Catholics think he's right, by and by a wide margin. Just twenty-three percent disagreed, and the breakdown was virtually the same across all age groups and among both weekly mass goers and those who attended church less frequently. So I, mean, I think the answer to that is, you know, they, you know, by and large, they do believe this. Would you agree or disagree? Do you mean the the Novus Ordo Catholics uh, yeah. agree? Yes, that's that's proof positive. Those polls are almost always the same. Those who deny the real presence, those who uh, love birth control, those who love abortion. Uh, you know, the the polls come out always pretty much the same, and it boils down to maybe twenty or twenty five percent. Of the people who call themselves, you know, Novus uh, or who attend the Novus Ordo, uh, have vestiges of Catholicism. I mean, they they are objecting to the abandonment of moral standards. Uh, they they are still holding out on certain things. Whereas the bulk of them think all of this uh, 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 liberalism and abandonment of doctrine and moral teaching is just wonderful. Uh, that finally the church has come around. I mean, it, practically every poll that is taken has you know very similar uh, numbers. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And well, again, it's a... the effect of Vatican II. Yeah. It's the effect yes. of Vatican II. It, it all goes back to that because the uh, effect of Vatican II was. Uh, uncertain or non-existent trumpet when it came to the preaching of the moral law. So this has uh, been going by the wayside uh, for years, and it's not uh, surprising really to hear that um, uh, that statistic. But for those who are in the 20 or 25 percent, that's uh, a you know uh, an indication really of how bad. Things have gotten, but they have to look for that source all the time, and, and it goes back to V2 in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Well, I think this is a probably a good place to wrap up here, and I just want to let our listeners know where they can find out more uh, about the work of Bishop Sanborn as well as Father Chicada. Bishop Sanborn is a rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida. And I must say, is doing work that, um, if it's being done elsewhere, I have no idea where it is. And if our listeners have been edified by His Excellency's contributions and taking time out of his schedule here this evening to be with us, we should all be very grateful for that. And I want both His Excellency and Father to know that we don't take your time for granted. Uh, It's very much appreciated, and we really enjoy having you on here. For those of you who want to make a donation to the seminary or to write to Bishop Sanborn, you can can write to him at 1000 Spring Lake Highway, Brooksville, Florida, 34602. 
And for those of you who are interested in Father Chicada and his ministry, which uh, many, many great um, uh, resources on his website, sggresources.org. Uh, I believe fatherchicada.org. He's now on Twitter. Or you can go to the St. Gertrude the Great uh, Church website and hear you know, weekly sermons from Bishop Dolan, who will be on with us tomorrow morning. Uh, you can go to sgg.org, or you can write to him at, uh, I believe it's uh, 4900 Rialto Road, R-I-A-L-T-O Road, Westchester, Ohio, 45069. And, Your Excellency, uh, Father, do you you have any wrap-up comments you'd like to make just to kind of put the, the bookends to this? Bergoglio is an apostate. That's my wrap-up comment. <laughs> Very blunt. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's nothing. There's nothing more to be said. Uh, once okay. you say there's no Catholic God, uh, and that the conscience is supreme, that's what you end up with. You can't. Mm-hmm. And there, there's no way, really, that you can finesse that or spin that. It's apostasy. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Your Excellency and Father, thank you so very much for your time here this evening. And uh, gauging by how fast these things are coming out, we'll probably talk to you again very, very soon. <laughs> okay. No, we, we no. should just stay on, stay on, though, just constantly because, you know, there's so much coming out. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for your time, Your Excellency Father. Good night. Thanks. God bless. Okay. okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. And to our listeners, I want to thank you for listening to uh, Clerical Conversations on the Crisis. Uh, this is a, a show which is, uh, you know, as you've seen lately, it, it, it's been a uh, – we've had to hit on some very timely topics. Uh, to find out more about True Restoration, who underwrites the program, you can go to truerestoration.org. And we ask you if you found this program to be uh, you know, beneficial to you. Uh, please consider making a donation to our apostolate, where our apostolate is um, – it's, it really is truly listener-supported, and we have uh, memberships for subscribers at every level. Uh, if all you can afford is a dollar, if the program is worth a dollar to you, we'll take a dollar. We'll obviously take more, but if that's all you can give, we have, we certainly appreciate it, and we keep you in our prayers. You can uh, follow us on our blog, truerestoration.blogspot.com. Uh, Uh, Or you can go to True Restoration, uh, our media interviews, where we have interviews with Father Chicada, Bishop Sanborn, and many other clerics, uh, including Bishop Williamson, who we spoke about earlier. And uh, those are are available for download. And uh, we hope to see you or hear you again very soon, or you hear us very soon, on uh, Clerical Conversations on the Crisis. And thank you so very much for listening. You're in our prayers. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.